Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Justin Trudeau chose fresh air and a farm for his backdrop as he unveiled a bill he claims will move Canada to net zero emissions by 2050 by forcing government to act. Bill C-12 lays out a framework of accountability and transparency that will ensure we reach this goal in a way that gives Canadians confidence. But the legislation isn't instilling a lot of confidence in the leader of the Green Party, Anna Mae Paul. There is no plan at all. Uh, There is no plan for getting us to net zero. Uh, There is very little accountability, and it's really just a game of smoke and mirrors. The legislation sets out Ottawa's commitment to set targets for emissions every five years. It requires the Minister of Environment to report on success or failure every five years. And it establishes an independent panel to advise the government on its actions. There are other measures and promises of more substantial policy to come. But there's no punishment for falling short included in Bill C-12. This week, saving the climate with legislation. It's working for some countries, and we'll ask whether it's part of Canada's solution. As Canadians, we cannot afford inaction in combating climate change. Tackling this challenge and making the most of new opportunities will require resources, pragmatism, and very much Canadian ingenuity. That, of course, is the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Jonathan Wilkinson, selling his new bill. Many are calling it a good first step, but there were expectations of a more ambitious plan with more accountability. West Coast Environmental Law is a nonprofit group of lawyers and strategists in B.C. It's been urging this kind of legislation for a decade. Andrew Gage is a staff lawyer there, and he's the head of the climate program. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. How satisfied are you with what's been laid out in the legislation? Well, I mean, clearly we're delighted that the government is looking at accountability legislation, but really... They should be learning from the the gold standard of this type of law, like the laws that have been enacted in the United Kingdom or in New Zealand, and they fall short. How so? Well, those pieces of legislation put an emphasis on both short-term action, acting in the immediate term, uh, and also on scientific expertise, on really relying on the science. And in this case, we've got uh, an act that really puts off any real action until trying to achieve targets in 2030. And we also have, although there's an expert body created by this, there's little detail on the scientific credentials of that committee and uh, really not as, it doesn't give as prominent a role to that committee as the legislation does in these other countries. Okay, let's get into these two things in a little bit more detail. You're right, the minister talked about that first target date being 2030. He's defending that by saying all other countries are focused on 2030 because that's what the Paris Agreement is focused on. What do you say to that? The, the Paris Agreement has each country list what its its targets are, and there certainly are other countries that have chosen 2025 as a significant target. Um, the, the UK Act requires a series of five-year targets to be set. 
Uh, and really, that's what the government promised when they promised they'd bring in this legislation is five year milestones. And we think they should deliver on that promise. But to be clear, they say they will do that, just not starting until 2030. Yeah, but the whole point of this type of legislation is to not push off decisions to years down the road. We've, we've had too many of Canada's climate targets be missed because they set long term targets and didn't do anything for years and years. And when we got close to the goal, uh, they, you know, the governments would say, oh, well, you know, it's too tough now. We've missed target after target. The key to meeting these targets is doing things in the short term, doing things in the next five years, not in the next 10 or 20. And when the government says that it's actually doing things now, that it has done things in the past, that it is preparing action, that's still not good enough? Then they should be able to tell us what will we have managed to achieve by 2025 and deliver on it. I have to say, you sound quite frustrated. Well, and I mean, I don't want to underplay the significance of this legislation. Canada hasn't had legislation of this type working. And the fact that we we have a law that will actually require reporting, will require targets, is we shouldn't underemphasize the importance of that. But if we're going to do this, let's do it right. The other point you brought up was about the, this expert body that is going to advise on the targets. Um, we're told that there will be scientists involved, that there will be Indigenous people involved, um, no detail mm-hmm. on who those people will be. What exactly are you saying is inadequate about this approach? So the UK legislation and the New Zealand legislation both give some indication of the types of experts that they want on the committee and in in the legislation itself. But more importantly, they actually, the UK Climate Change Committee actually makes recommendations about what the targets should be. And the government then needs to explain if they're not going to follow them, why they're not following the advice of their experts. Here, the expert advice is just one of many considerations the government has to consider in setting the targets. The government has said it intends to make the panel's advice public and transparent, but that doesn't seem to be set out in the legislation. And I'm wondering what concerns you have about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the only requirement is that the minister's response to the expert committee is public in terms of responding to their their annual reports. But uh, it is concerning that that more generally the reports from the committee uh, of this expert body are are not necessarily going to be public. Uh, Obviously, we we would certainly hold the government to its commitment uh, to make those documents available, but that's a promise, not a, not a legislated requirement. Now, when it comes to actual reporting, the bill calls for a progress report and an assessment report. Is that enough? So, I, I, no, I don't think it is, um, simply because the, the way they've set it up, they actually are only planning towards one five-year target at a time. Uh, so that's a very short time period. So to have one report a couple of years, two or three years in saying, oh, well, we, we're not on progress, or on, on target to, to achieve this target doesn't give the government a lot of time to respond and correct course. The UK Act, again, I hate to keep going back to it, but they require planning 15 years out with five-year increments. And so they know that they're not on target at the beginning to achieve the 15-year target, but they, are, they have lots of time to correct for that. Whereas having one report saying, as the Canadian legislation would do, saying, you know, you are on target or you're not on target. And another one saying we met the target or we, we didn't. And, you know, if we didn't meet the target, what are we going to do about it? it? It doesn't provide for the same level of course correction as we go along towards making these very difficult decisions and, and achieving targets that involve the, making difficult choices. Now, one of the things that we've also seen from the UK is, is that there seems to be more of a political consensus around the need to tackle this. Um, here in Canada, we know there are divisions and we've seen the pushback from provinces, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan and other places on, on federal policies like carbon pricing. That's gone all the mm-hmm. way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. How likely do you see this being opposed as well? 
Well, the legislation as it currently is doesn't actually impose any obligations on the provinces. Uh, and that's actually, uh, a, while I didn't expect it to, I would have thought it would be more useful to uh, for the legislation to really uh, require the minister to have some of those conversations with the provinces and work out how Canada as a whole will achieve its targets. The provinces, I don't think, have any reason for concern under the current legislation that the federal government will be stepping in inappropriately here because the legislation is actually quite weak in that area. Well, okay. Then that leads to the question, if it's so weak, can Canada meet its targets if it can't get higher emitting provinces on board? I think that's a critical question, and it is one of the, the gaps in this legislation is that it really needs to, to grapple with that. We had called, along with the groups the groups we have been working on this, have been calling for the expert body to have a role in, in identifying what portion of Canada's targets need to be coming from which provinces, uh, at least as a beginning of a conversation. Um, not necessarily making that legally binding, but at least making it transparent so we can talk about that. And that's not the role that the federal government has has followed. Instead, it it seems to be let's not talk about this because it may not it may be difficult to talk about. And I think that that is a recipe for failure. Minister Wilkinson was also asked about this idea that there's no penalty per se in the legislation, and his answer quite clearly was, "Well, the penalty would be from the people if they voted the government out." And I'm wondering whether you think that's adequate. No, I mean, I don't think that that's adequate. I think it's part of what's meant by accountability legislation. And certainly having an arm's length expert saying, no, the government isn't doing enough to achieve its targets is important. Uh, But we do think that the legislation could be a lot clearer in terms of the government's legal obligations to achieve the targets. I wonder then, at the end of the day, um, we're looking at, at the legislation. This is supposed to be climate accountability legislation. So how accountable is the government right now, given what it's table? Yeah, I mean, as the minister said, currently this legislation relies very heavily on political accountability and less so on legal accountability. And for you, what what does that mean uh, going forward? I mean, this isn't the law yet. There's still a legislative process to go through. Would you be making your representations to make changes? And what would be at the very top of your list? Absolutely. We expect to to be uh, asking the the government and the parliamentary committee that examines this legislation to improve it. Uh, I think having the 2025 target is key. Having a a slightly longer planning framework and a a more rigorous role for the expert committee and more mandatory language in terms of actually delivering on the plans of the government tables. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Andrew Gage is a staff lawyer with West Coast Environmental Law. Now, one thing that you might have noticed is this bill doesn't include any new policies to reduce emissions. It sets the destination, but not the map to get there. So we're going to dig into that in a few minutes. But first, you heard there about the UK's climate law. It's the first of its kind in the world, and it's considered the gold standard for this kind of legislation. So we decided to find out more. The UK performance is actually quite good. That's Sam Fankhauser, the director of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change at the London School of Economics. He studied the impact of the UK's 2008 Climate Change Act. Since 1990, UK emissions have reduced by something like 40%. GDP at the same time has gone up by something like 70%. So while Canada has missed every climate target it's set so far, the UK has done it, hit every single one. 
largely by decarbonizing the power grid, cutting down coal-fired electricity and increasing renewables. People think we have, we've done the easy stuff and, and we now have the hard stuff, and, and, and I think that is true. But then again, you know, if you think back to 2008, uh, and I remember those discussions then, it didn't feel like the easy stuff then. Decarbonizing the power grid felt complicated, felt ambitious. And we have achieved that, not effortlessly, but relatively uh, efficiently. So, let's dig into the law. Like Canada's proposed legislation, the UK has a long-term target of net zero by 2050. It handles the short term, though, a bit differently, with five-year carbon budgets that set out just how much CO2 it can emit. Then, there are experts with a lot of clout. The UK set up a very powerful independent advisory body, the Committee on Climate Change, and and it, it, it has transformed the debate by providing evidence and independent opinion and independent scrutiny. Canada's new climate bill also includes an advisory body, but we don't know who will be on it or just how much power they will have. Here's how Fankhauser describes the UK committee, which he served on for eight years. Every policymaker, every industry representative, everybody in the climate change space looks to the Committee on Climate Change for its analysis. Why is it so powerful? Uh, Sort of a first factor probably is its clear independence. The members are not representative of particular interest groups or regions. They are technical experts, so they know what they're talking about and they're respected for that. Now that sounds sort of like public health officials we've come to know during the pandemic, right? Now compare that to what we've learned so far here. After we spoke with Andrew Gage, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change said along with climate experts and Indigenous representatives, the government wants to include people from industry and labour. Their advice will be made public, the minister said, along with the government response. But as we know, the minister sets the terms of reference, and the panel will report to him rather than Parliament. Now, that's a departure from the UK law that Fankhauser calls a missed opportunity, as it's likely to make the Canadian panel more like advisors and less like the UK's watchdogs. The government has to explain to Parliament if the advice isn't followed, why the advice hasn't been followed. So the odds are stacked in favour of the Committee on Climate Change. And NGOs have used that legislative power quite, uh, quite ruthlessly and threatening uh, judicial review whenever there's a risk that the government might not follow the advice of the Committee on Climate Change. Now, Fankhauser says so far the UK legislation has helped keep climate action on the agenda, even as governments have changed. That isn't to say that there haven't been attempts to backtrack. We've had climate sceptical ministers in charge for periods of time, um, but even those ministers uh, were respectful of the rule of law and if they were told that the law of the land required certain climate action, actions, they were, you know, they were compelled to fulfil that. Now, how it will all work here, we'll just have to wait and see. Bankhauser says the UK has long had more political consensus on climate than in Canada or the United States. And when that's wavered, the public has pushed back. Uh, over the last two years or so, there has been popular demand for more climate action, um, you know, the, the school strikes, um, but also climate emergency declarations, Extinction Rebellion, have, have really changed the mood. So the sort of the 2015-16 sort of backtracking 
has been replaced by a situation where now all government parties are again in favour of very uh, thorough and rapid climate change action. So even the sort of the slowest of the parties is committed to net zero. So even if the bill introduced a few days ago passes, the hard work is yet to come. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. We've invited Sarah Birch and Mark Jackard to discuss some of the best strategies to hit net zero emissions by 2050. Sarah Birch is a Canada Research Chair in Sustainability Governance and Innovation at the University of Waterloo. Mark Jackard is a Professor of Sustainable Energy at Simon Fraser University and a frequent advisor on government climate policy. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Sarah, let's start with you. How far do you think this legislation goes in actually ensuring Canada will hit its targets for 2030 and beyond? Well, I think this is an important step um, towards laying the foundation for reaching those targets. I think we absolutely need, you know, legislated mechanisms for um, setting that 2050 target, for ensuring that we set interim targets um, and that we monitor and you know check on our progress as we go. So it's it's a mechanism for uh, for laying out that pathway. But it in itself, the, the purpose of this bill is not to actually prescribe policies for getting there. Right. And Mark, one one benchmark that was expected but seems to be missing in the legislation is a target for 2025. Do you think 2030 is soon enough? Uh, no, there should be a target for 2025 as well. And maybe they'll do that. I don't know. I was uh, a little surprised by that myself. And and just to sort of support what Sarah said, it's, you know, I think something like this is a, it's a, a small, uh, semi-large indicator of uh, intent or what I call climate sincerity, but it doesn't get you the climate sincerity badge. What you need are very specific policies, and the government has done many of these. So the coal plant phase-out is fantastic, which is by 2030, any remaining coal plants are gone or they're capturing their carbon. So that's the kind of thing you really want, as opposed to no current government can bind a future government to any kind of target in any case. Right. And and that's also uh, obvious in, in this legislation. But Sarah, I want to ask you also about that, that idea that there's no 2025 target. Do you think that that should be part of the package? I do. I think I think 2030 is an awful long way off. And, uh, you know, it means we would have action plans in place before 2028. But we, we know that we're already not on track to meet the targets we've set under the Paris Agreement. So it's clear that, you know, even even more ambitious um, action is required to meet those targets. I, I view this, you know, this as one step towards the transparency side of things, 
a little bit light on the accountability side. What are the repercussions or the implications of not meeting these targets that we set? Uh, I think that's a really important part of the equation. Okay. So far, we've been talking about, if, if you will, the skeleton. Um, but the flesh is the policy. And what isn't in the legislation is policy about how to reach the targets. And that, we're told, is still to come. Mark, what is on top of your list for, for just how Ottawa can reduce emissions? I know, I know you've already talked about phasing out coal. So this legislation doesn't have the policies in there. <clears throat> but that's because we already have the policies. <laughs> we have carbon pricing. So either that carbon price, and the government has a scheduled increase in the carbon price to the year 2022, and either that has to increase or uh, other policies. It's coming out with a clean fuel standard, which requires a declining carbon intensity. So it's a way of phasing out gasoline from what is used in vehicles. They they should have gone faster on methane regulations, but it was a little slowed down. Donald Trump didn't help, but I think that will pick up again. Um, and then there's been various other policies. So stringencies need to be uh, increased. And lots of people are making policy recommendations but, on that regard. But are you saying that Ottawa's done enough in terms uh, of no, policy? No, the stringencies need to increase. Some people say, let's have 30 policies. If you have four good policies that affect emissions in industry, so our output-based pricing system, one of the few countries to have put prices on a percentage of emissions from industry, transforming your electricity sector. Now we need to transform uh, the transportation sector and the building sector. And so we have the right policies in place. Their stringencies need to increase. So the regulations need to be tighter or the carbon price needs to rise. Sarah? So so I think, you know, Mark is pointing to um, a really important foundation that's been laid. And I think, you know, we look at this act and we see that that it says that we will get um, this 2030 target, which of course we've already agreed to a 2030 target under the Paris Agreement, but we will get a legislated um, 2030 target and then an action plan for reaching that within six months of this act coming into force. So, I mean, I'll be, I'll be keeping my eyes on that to see um, see what, uh, what ends up in the action plan. What I'm really looking for is, you know, Canada faces real challenges because of the distributed, you know, the jurisdiction over greenhouse gas emissions shared between the federal government, the provinces and municipalities, territories and indigenous groups. So, you know, I think this has to be a coordinated effort. So I'm looking for more support for in particular municipalities to take the steps that they're particularly well equipped to take, addressing urban forum, addressing buildings, uh, really helping to ratchet down those transportation emissions. So supports for municipalities are crucial supports for um, small businesses that are absolutely getting walloped uh, through the, the COVID-19 pandemic so that they can become more resilient and, and more sustainable over time. Okay. So I would be looking at policies targeting those sectors in particular. Okay. And, and let's talk about though one of the other um, potential or, or actually already real stumbling blocks. Mark, we're, we're waiting, awaiting a ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada on Ottawa's attempts to establish a carbon pricing scheme across the country. How big of a barrier are provinces right now to effective federal policy? You know, Justin Trudeau got elected in 2015 and said he was developing a pan-Canadian framework. And there was kind of what uh, 
some philosophers call a monistic view of the world, that if I just talk to everybody and I'm reasonable, they'll all agree with me. And so everyone will agree on carbon pricing and we'll not only agree on targets for the country for emission reductions, but on the specific policies to get there. And so I wrote a fair bit, op-eds and so on, around 2015, 2016, saying there's no evidence that you will ever get to that. Um, people have very different views about the importance of climate, about the policies to, to do anything about that. And that will always be the case. So you will never get uh, unanimity. And so we need a federal government that says, oh, this is a global problem. I need to go negotiate with other countries. And then we have to have our own carrots and sticks internationally. So repercussions, if you're not complying, and we haven't gotten to that yet. And then within a country, let's hope that the national government you know, has the authority to do military, to do national justice, and to do international environmental agreements, and to make sure they're complied with without hoping for the voluntary agreement of every single province in the country. Sarah, what do, do you agree or disagree? <laughs> yeah, it, turn, it turns out I, um, I both agree and disagree. Okay. Absolutely, the federal government has a powerful role to play, and it can't abdicate that responsibility. And I think those are the policies that Mark is is highlighting, and those policies do need to increase in stringency. However, municipalities have jurisdiction over a large proportion of emissions. They have to be on board. If they're operating at odds with the federal government, we will never reach these ambitious targets we're setting. And we know that municipalities get very few cents on each dollar of income tax. They're generally cash starved and they're being asked to do more and more and more all the time. They're not just simple, you know, garbage collectors and water providers. These are transformative targets where we're kind of plucking the low hanging fruit already. And to get to this deeper transformation towards net zero by 2050. We don't want to just hope, but we need all levels of government to be on board. And how do you do that? Well, Either one of you, go ahead. Well, tell me, tell well, me what ahead. the solution is. Well, no, I'm going to disagree with Sarah. <laughs> I, I model greenhouse gas emissions in cities. Um, they come from buildings and transportation, movement of people and goods. And about 85 to 90% of those emissions are in buildings and in transportation. And so guess what? When you um, transform transportation, which federal governments can do, provincial governments can do, cities are not as able to do it. That is, all vehicles are electric or perhaps using hydrogen or some biofuel. So you have to do that nationally. Guess what happens to the emissions in cities? Well, they disappear for transportation. We also have to make sure that you're not burning natural gas in buildings, whether you're in a city or out of a city. So the clean fuel standard that I was talking about has a gaseous section. And in British Columbia, we're again the leaders in the country. We're putting in rules that any gas delivered to buildings, increasingly the fossil fuel element has to drop towards zero by 2050. Once you do that, once you put in those two policies, and you've decarbonized electricity, then it turns out that emissions in cities fall by 85 to 90% without cities having to have done anything. You know, I agree with you on where the emissions are coming from and who has jurisdiction over them, but we can't neglect the reality that we have very different political climates in each province across the country and keeping folks on board and seeing how this will benefit their own economy and their own communities, I think is an important part of it. Um, Sarah, you've written about carbon being woven into our economy and the idea of a just transition for the people and companies who've gotten us to this point. How far along do you see we've gotten in that process? How far do we have to go and how important is that? 
I think we have a lot of work to do, but I'm seeing promising signals. I mean, not not in this Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. There's very very little reference um, to a just transition or an inclusive transition, nor, uh, for that matter, is there any reference to uh, climate change adaptation, which uh, was embedded in this sort of act in the UK. So that's um, those are sort of interesting omissions, but I think this is a really focused bill. Uh, those in favor of, um, of ambitious climate change action have sort of done themselves a disservice, I think, and certainly past governments have as well, by not considering just how powerfully people are um, understandably, you know, attached to their, their culture and their livelihoods and having spent an you know, a number of years in Alberta, lived there for several years and studied there. Um, I can appreciate that, um, that if we don't map a pathway forward uh, towards, you know, a decarbonized economy that brings those folks on board, we're not going to get very far. And so we've been spinning our wheels for, for a long time because of that. Um, but I think that conversation is starting now, which is really important. I think the COVID pandemic um, and then hopefully the recovery that is coming soon has cracked that conversation open again for us to reflect on who is most vulnerable and who is, you know, most in need of support. I am sure we're going to be talking to the two of you again, but for now, I thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah Birch holds a Canada Research Chair in Sustainability, Governance and Innovation at the University of Waterloo. Mark Jackard is a Professor of Sustainable Energy at Simon Fraser University and a frequent government advisor. Both are lead authors for the upcoming assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that does it for us this week. If you've missed any of today's episode, head to CBC Listen. You can catch up on old episodes and discover the best from CBC Radio podcasts and music. Thanks to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wilson. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.